I feel like our students go out into the world with knowing who they are, what they want to do. And then I think with this um, feeling of, I want to contribute to the world. I'm Ashley McFarlane, a nonprofit executive living in Duluth, Minnesota, and you are listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, we start a new series the mind of the child. Longtime listeners of the podcast know that I have two young daughters and I am intensely interested in understanding how is it that they learn everything from language to the way they walk and move to hearing the inner voice that guides them on the way. So we've set up this series to explore different ways of educating children, challenges that they encounter as they enter adolescence, and many things along the way. This first interview is with two Waldorf School educators. For anybody that's never heard of Waldorf School, you're in for a real treat. It's a little like Montessori, but it's also something different. The way they understand how the child moves through their life is just a little bit different than almost every other education program I've ever heard of. And so today, you're going to get to explore a different way of thinking about educating your children. Before we get to that, We are using these studios every day for legacy interviews. This is where I sit down with a person or a couple to explore their life, to hear their stories, to listen to the values that they've accumulated and really made it so they can share the experiences that they've had with future generations. If you're interested in having me conduct a private interview with one of your loved ones, go to LegacyInterviews.com to find out more. All right, without further ado, let's go to this very special interview with two Waldorf educators. Michio Kishi and Chris Gent, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. (laughs) You two are the first time I've ever interviewed two people at the same time on the podcast, but I wanted to do it because you have a special knowledge of the way that kids grow up and the way that they learn through, um, because you both work at the Waldorf School. So to start off, how would you describe, Chris, the Waldorf education? Oh, that's a big question. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. So, so the quickest way I would describe it is if you know what Montessori is, head that direction and keep going a while and you'll find Waldorf. Um, but specifically, it's a, it's a education that that really focuses on employing the arts, employing, I guess we would call social, emotional, moral education now. And in addition to the academics and those things, not just to support the academics, but because they are noble and beneficial and and good in their own right. My sense when I was looking up the uh, Waldorf program Mm -hmm. is that Montessori is really focused on having the child be focused on how to become productive quickly. Mm. And Waldorf was more of like childhood is, should be understood that it's a slower process than that. Mm-hmm. You work with the tiny children. Yes. What is it that people should know about children when they're really young, starting in the education system? <laughs> well, so the young children, come here um, with full of senses. And then everything they see and feel and touch 
really affects them. And it slowly takes time. It takes time to really for them to know the world. So give them enough time to really be in the world first and be in their physical body. We couldn't even walk in the first, like how much they learn in first three years. Walk, well, crawl, walk, eat, stand up, and also speak, and how to sleep. All these things is a lot of work. So understanding that in the first few years is really unique, I feel, for our way of approaching. I had a chance to go to a um, like a parent-child mm-hmm. thing, and actually it was in your class. Mm-hmm. And at first it was very awkward for me because you as the teacher almost don't talk at all. What's going on there when, when you're, what is your role as a teacher when you're with little children? So that's, yes. So because they are very sensitive, I try not to overload with my speech or my presence. So I speak quietly. That's probably what you noticed. And the young children learn through doing, through imitation rather than being instructed. So I'm really modeling what I do for the children so that they can learn by imitating me. And what does that imitation look like? Because, it's, you know, I have a two-year-old right now and it doesn't always look like she's imitating me. <laughs> or they will imitate what you don't want them to imitate. <laughs> but, um, well, and then also re- repetition, really. So consistency and repetition. So I'm not sure if you noticed the first class she came, probably she didn't know what to do. But the, by the end of the session, which I don't know which session you went on, eight weeks or 10 weeks, they do know what to expect. So imitation doesn't happen right away, but it happens over times with consistency and repetition. Yeah, like you guys had a song when I was there that it was uh, toys away, toys away. <laughs> and like we now sing that song and it's it's amazing, almost like um, creepy in a way, right? Where you're like, Magic. you can sing this song. Magical maybe is a better way to put it where where she just knows then what to do. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's really how they learn by doing it and by repeating it. So, Chris. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of lay out the, I think some people call it the Steiner School or the Waldorf method. They think about education of children like that there are epochs of a child that they like live in these different stages. Can you kind of lay that out? Yeah. I would, yeah. And when Steiner talked about it, he split it really into three seven-year periods. So working with any child, they very rarely will fit perfectly into any model you give them first seven years, call that the early child, and that's that's Michio's specialty. And from seven-ish to 14-ish, you have then the middle stage, and that's where I do most of my work. And then finally, 14 to 21, that's the final stage, adolescence and young adulthood. So yeah, um, we, we can each speak to the parts we know about our own. Yeah, generally, you're learning the very basic things about life and living in the early childhood. And then 
it's really once they enter the second that we start working with more academics ideas, bringing in the thinking. But even even with that, it's really the feeling life that is very active. So emotions, morality, what is good, what is right. So So that's a lot of our work there as well. And then when they move to the last one, the adolescence, that's really the height of where they can get into the intellectual subjects. And yeah, and so for a Waldorf high school, that would that would look very different than a Waldorf elementary elementary and middle school, which is what we do, and that also looks different than the early childhood. Yes, and I guess each stages um, the way we teach is different. So when you go to grade school, the teachers are talking more. <laughs> Even when you see me in kindergarten, it will be very different than what you saw in the parent-child class too. Because mm -hmm. how we teach, like how we can effectively reach the children will change as they develop and they change too. And then I think this Waldorf is very unique in a way that zero to seven years old, we really try to bring this um, morale or in goodness of the world. We want them to think, feel this world is good. And then the learning is, again, doing, right? Willing, doing. And then the seven to 14 is like he was saying, feeling life. So that's why a lot of arts and music and theater comes in and a lot of storytelling and when they're middle schooler, Chris can talk a lot more about middle school, yes. but the biography, so that, that, that their feeling can be stirred. And that's how they learn better, best in that 7 to 14 years old. So that's how we use that method. And in 14 to 21 is real thinking, means their own thinking, how they can think on their own independently. What's right, what's not right, what is the truth in this world? So that is really like the process of unfolding of the children. We see this as a process and not what they can do in kindergarten or even third grade. I think the thing that's striking for people if they're totally outside of the Waldorf system, you know, the, there's a couple of things that when you're an outsider, you see it and you're surprised. I would even say shocked by, right? One would be these little children are outside almost all day, right? Or, or maybe all day, right? And like, it could be raining out, it could be snowing, but these kids are outside. So that's the first one. And the second one that I think surprises people is there's definitely an emphasis in Western culture on being like, my child learned to read when she was, you know, three years old and we were doing our letters and we knew how to do all these things. And Waldorf does not emphasize that at all, it seems like uh, in the early years. In the early years. So first, let's start off like, what's going on with the kids that are outside, you know, in in freezing cold weather or rain? <laughs> why why, did, why is that the option? Hmm. Well, because that's the real world too. <laughs> and then, really, uh, there are so much sensory experience you can have outside. Lots of learning. I think we they experience the physics science all these things outside as well and imagination of course and then focus to play without any kind of toys just the natural material sticks and rocks and all these things they just can play outside and also resilience i think 
they, it's okay. They can go outside if it's raining and they can experience all the elements of the weather. And then, yes, and they are okay. I think that's such a strong feeling. I am okay in this world. Yep. Rain or shine, snow can yep. be really fun and exciting for our school. Yep. And problem solving that comes with that. Mm -hmm. If they're outside on a rainy or snowy day, they'll be wearing rain boots or snow boots. It's hard to run. So if they want to play tag, well, that's going to be hard. So now they have to figure out something else. Just as one example. Yeah, as a parent, it was it was really good for me to see Violet being able to play outside because my natural inclination was like, oh, it's 40 degrees out. Uh, you know, we're really hitting the danger zone on on when a child can be outside. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait a second. No, 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 no. Like <laughs> that's not even just overprotectiveness. It's like a sheltering to where she actually doesn't get to experience the world around her in a way. And so it like it didn't take me very long to find this to be like uh like something really refreshing and i think the fact that her mother and my wife could see other kids playing outside like i think it probably has a very powerful impact on the parents as well to see what their children can do mm -hmm. and it's just very healing in this busy world that children who struggle to sit still or who cannot hold their voice, right? Yes. Their children are loud. Mm -hmm. And then, but when, when we are inside, they are supposed to use their indoor voice and indoor body yep. because you can't run around and be loud outside. But then being outside, they can be free and it's very healing for them to feel that nature and then quietness in the nature and all of that. So, um, in your program, one of the things that I noticed was, and this is like most of my experiences just with these little tiny children was, uh, the singing of songs and things like baking bread, right? Where they made that bread. What is the role of that? Those kinds of, of, uh, activities that you're doing. Hmm. So in early childhood, <clears throat> we try to really bring the real actual work that's useful we don't do the work just for the sake of doing things so bread making we make bread we actually in kindergarten we grind our grain as well that oh, we, really we do so we grind our grain and we make our dough and then make our bread and eat our bread so the whole process of experience and what knowing they can make the things they eat on their own is something that's powerful for them to know as a life skill. So yes, and then also um, we do a lot of chores, sitting at the table, cleaning up, um, chopping vegetables for soup, all these things, like learning to take care of themselves. And then, and also a lot of learning happening, right? Fine motor skills. And then, yes, some science is happening in bread making mm -hmm. or, you know, like a lot of things happen when we set the table. It's a little bit of mathematical thinking happening with one-on-one -on -one correspondences, like one placemat, one cup, and one napkin. All these things can happen by really doing the actual work, and it's really meaningful and authentic. It doesn't feel like... 
I mean, I I can remember viscerally like uh, hating writing things over and over and over and over again in paper, right? Like uh, trying to get my letters right in the first grade. But if somebody had let me bake bread, I would have been right at home. And I think I probably that's most children would be that way. You went to Waldorf. You grew up in the Waldorf program. Mm -hmm. And what is your earliest memories of, of school? Well, I can remember the room we had our kindergarten in. If I went back now, I'm sure it would be much smaller than I remember. <laughs> um, I, I really only have two memories from that year. One is some friends and I, some friends and I were sitting on something. I think it was a bench and pretending it was a train. And someone was telling us about Pennsylvania. We were wondering if that's a place where there's pencils for trees or something like that. And then the, the other I can remember is um, playing outside. And there's some kind of climbing structure we were up on. And I, I can remember being up there. Yeah, that's, those are conscious memories. But, you know, I, I do also remember bread making, specifically one of the songs we would sing as we needed the dough. I remember using a grinder that I can recognize one of those when I see it. Yeah, that's what I remember about kindergarten. And when you think about the parents that have this like pull to making sure that their kids are going to be like, you know, the, the smartest kids, the best kids, the most prepared, most of them are thinking about getting their kids ready by reading or doing phonics. Mm -hmm. Tell me, how does this, how does that, you know, collide with the, the Wald, with the Waldorf pro program? Well, maybe Chris can go later, right? With the literacy. Yep. But in earliest years, um, so we're so the children needs to be able to physically ready to read, which means simply the children might have to be able to follow the letter left to right smoothly, or they should be able to look at the chalkboard and the copy. All these things needs to be developed before they sit down and then do academics. So we really focus on the physical development first. So that's why we do a lot of movement. That's why we do con conscious movement in the classroom as well. So that's one thing. But the little What does that mean, conscious movement? Hmm. So try to integrate left side and right side or the horizontal midline crossing the horizontal midline or simply fine motor skill development if they are not able to really hold the pencil correctly it's really hard for them to sit down and write or those physical basic physical readiness is really our focus and then if their muscle is not developing enough to sit down still for 15 minutes it's really painful for the children to sit down if their body is not quite ready. And then a lot of children could be diagnosed with ADHD too early because they, simply because they're not quite ready to sit down still. Or well, balance has to be there. Their balance has to be there for them to be able to, again, sit down and look at the letters and copy. All these things has to be ready 
before they start decoding. That doesn't mean we don't start the literacy education in early childhood. So like you maybe remember the little poems and verse and songs we do, even in a little baby class, has a lot of rhyming and a lot of rich language in there. And the stories and the imagination that comes with the story is developing their comprehension skills. So that's how we work in early childhood, telling the story, uh, working with the songs, poems, uh, instead of teaching them how to decode first. Yeah, the stories are, are amazing in the sense that uh, they have like they're religious in nature, but not, but not, uh, in, I don't want to say that they're not instructive, but they're not, um, well, I don't know. Maybe the best way for me is to ask you, what stories do you tell in Waldorf? Sure. That changes again to meet the needs of the children, developmental needs of the children. So in early years, I often do nature stories. Like maybe you might have heard, I'm not sure what, when you were there, but nature stories of, a uh, little gnome going on a walk and finding treasures and things like that. Very imaginative. Or in kindergarten, I do a little more fairy tale, folk tale type of things. Um, sometimes it is presented by puppet show, as a puppet show, especially with the younger one, to give them a little image so that they can follow story. But in kindergarten, I also do just tell story without any pictures or puppet. So that makes them to really imagine the story and then also um, really developing the ability to create their mental pictures, which is really the comprehension skill and the beginning of the abstract thinking. So they should be able to picture the story in their head. So, and then we repeat the same story for a few times at least. So they have opportunity to really grow this picture and then learn new vocabulary because we do use rich language actually we don't really wash it down for the little children they don't know the words not necessarily but they can kind of figure out and that's how we start to read too mm -hmm. so we start from that way in early childhood yeah i'm struck by the way that you're describing this as um in the more traditional like public schools, right? You have recess, which is just like a, a break from what the learning is. And you're like learning, learning, learning. Now go try and take a break and get your energy out. Now let's come back and try and learn. And this is um, so different. It's not even an inversion of that, right? It, it's like uh, we're, we're playing, we're interacting with the world. And now we're hearing stories and that's a part of what we're learning, but we're never sitting down and being like, this is the instruction. Well, not never. I don't know what you do, but at least when they're young, you're not sitting down and doing instruction. Not as much. Sometimes for the older kindergarten student, I do have little more instruction, like activities that needs little more instruction and things like that. They do sewing, they do weaving. Um, what else? They do a lot of things. Handwork. Yes, those things happens too. And we do painting. Those are all sitting down activities. So they have time to sit down. And also snack time is also sitting down time. We are snack time, as you experience. It's pretty nice. We sit down and light the candle. And it, it is an expectation for all of us to sit and eat. 
And that itself really is training for them to sit down for 15, 20 minutes too. So we don't really necessarily force them to sit down to do the work, but trying to bring these opportunities so that they are ready when they go to first grade. And what do you think is the role of, of like education? Does, is there, if somebody knew how to do the Waldorf, you know, thinking, could they do it at home with their own children or is a part of the education, the fact that you're around other kids? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you say? Probably curriculum you could bring. Yeah, a lot. I mean, the techniques you can bring, the curriculum you can bring, you can find all, find or make all the tools you need for the activities. But yeah, the, the social aspect is very important. And unless you have a large family, that's going to be difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It is a lot of a focus on community and social learning, especially mm-hmm. in younger age. We don't really... in instead of tailoring it well we do actually meet individual child's needs but we try to work as a group a lot especially in a younger grade i'm sure chris is still he's teaching second and third Mm -hmm. still pretty much as a whole as a group they learn as a group and then as they get older it will be a little bit different Mm -hmm. so yes it might be difficult so have that experience. Second or third grade, is that about seven years old? Uh, let's see. So first grade's usually six and seven, second is seven and eight, and third is eight to nine. So tell me about the mind of a child that is moving from this early childhood mm-hmm. into this, you know, second level. Sure. So one, one change we, we talk about is the transition from the eye to the ear. So when they're young, they're seeing things and imitating, but as they're getting, as they're ready for academics and the grades program, what we're, what we're looking for is that they're able to hear things and do them. So I don't have to show them a particular action. I can say, this is, so next you will do this and they'll be able to do that. Now, obviously not, not first thing when they get there and we build up (laughs) all skills, but that's that's one of the changes that we have. Now there is there is more of this thinking that we bring in. So now we'll start with learning. You learn the numbers. You learn how to count. Then we build it, and then we talk about the idea of addition. So putting things together, and then different ways that you can figure out what that is. Uh, subtraction, often giving away. It's how I teach it. You you could talk about losing, but that's a that's a sad way to think about it. <laughs> uh, and division, which is sharing. How do we divide this up evenly? So now these these are physical things you can do, and for there would just be things you would do. So here, pass out one spoon to everyone. But now it will be okay. There are twelve of us. We each need one spoon. How many is that? Well, that's twelve. Um, bringing up bread making since once a year, the second grade class makes bread for the whole school. And for us, yes, it, it is about actually the process of making bread, reviewing that. But also there, I have a chance to then apply some of this math we've been practicing. So we have a recipe, it makes 12 rolls. Well, if we have 
80 something, let's say 81, I think was last year, 81 rolls we need. Well, how many batches do we need to make? And then we go through, we say, well, we can count up by 12s. And we had a poem we, we learned before the 12s, so we go through that, and then 12, 24, 36, up, and we find, oh, 84. So we now need seven batches. And now with all these things, we need to multiply them by seven. So instead of four cups, it's four by seven cups. And we can measure all that out, count all that out, figure out how it is. So I'm struck as you're saying this, that mm -hmm. the math that I learned was very reductionist, right? Let me show you what the core working of addition or subtraction is, mm -hmm. but you're layering in these concepts of the way human beings actually interact, it's actually probably a lot closer to how kids learned before we had, you know, industrial school system. Cause they're just like, how, how many ways can we cut this piece of bread up or. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, one of the teachers who I learned from, he said that you should teach division first because it's about sharing, which is really the heart of first grade fascinating because normally you think of division as being like i don't know third or fourth i didn't learn division until third or fourth grade because that was the harder math yep well they actually in, are introduced all four processes in first grade because numbers yep. are made up in a multiple different ways yeah now we're we're not doing written long division in first grade so i'm not saying what's 212 divided by eight build your house and yeah, but neither is any, but any, no, there's no school yeah. that's doing that. Yeah, yes. yeah, that's right. Yeah, but I don't want to give that impression. So, <laughs> you know, we're doing, we've got 12 things. You put it in groups of four. How many do we, how many groups do we have? I was very mistaken about this. I, I my impression <laughs> was that Waldorf just waits because you're just not ready for it. Oh. Um, and that like, we'll get to the book learning later on things like <laughs> the math and the science, but it's so integrated that the reason it's hard to understand that is because math is, in, in my mind, is mm -hmm. very much like we're going to break this down into the way the machine works mm -hmm. and just show you those parts of those machine mm -hmm. to, to assemble it all. Math so, is practical, right? Yes. It's, yeah, yeah. And, it's easier and, to make it practical and then hands-on. Yeah, and the child, even in this second stage, they're still very concrete in their reasoning. And you know, a lot of math is very abstract. You know, for, for us, we think nine. Yeah, we know what nine is, but could be nine of anything. You know, we have nine water bottles, nine, nine shoes. But you can also take up one thing and cut it into nine. These things are all nine, but each of those is a separate nine. So really working from the practical, from the concrete is really kind of the core of what we do in the early grades and in the early grades my i understand that uh kids get is it one teacher for like longer periods of time yeah so they have their lead teacher so they start the day they have what we call the morning lesson and that's hour and a half to two hours depending on exact schedule and then so they're with them for that part of the morning and then Throughout the day for first grade, they'll usually be with them again twice for two 45-minute class periods. Sometimes those will be combined for an hour and a half period. 
but then also they'll be with that teacher for their snack and recess and lunch and recess. And then that leaves then two other periods in the two or three when they're with another teacher or with different teachers. So it could be they have handwork and then French one day and then the other four periods are with their lead teacher. I'm counting the morning one is two periods since it's longer, but yeah. And then, so that's with it within the school day, but also year by year, each, each year the teacher rises. So next year I'll be teaching third and fourth. So my second and third grade, well, they'll be third and fourth. So I will teach them next year. So that's a multi-year commitment, right? That's yep. you saying, hey, I'm going to go along with these students and we're all in this boat together. Mm -hmm. Yes. Wow. That's very different, right? That's certainly the, I don't know what we want to call it, the Western education system. Mm -hmm. Normally, you're I'm a second grade teacher and I teach second graders. Yes. And then when they pass on and eventually you get to a point where you're like, I'm the fifth grade math teacher and I just teach fifth grade math. Yep. It forces yeah. us to learn new things every mm -hmm. year. Yeah. And that's how the children, right, learn from us, too. We mm -hmm. have to be excited about what we do. Yep. What do you do if you have children that you intrinsically have conflict with? <laughs> yep, that's that's one of the challenges. <laughs> yeah. But it's, there is a, you know, there is a gift in that, mm -hmm. right? Because that we needed to learn. We need to learn from that experience. Excuse me one second. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> oh, where were we? Yeah. We needed yeah. to. Yes, because that gives me, as a teacher, oh, there's something more I need to mm -hmm. learn. Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, I can't tell you how many times my parents would be like, oh, you just got to get through this, you know? And then imagining like, well, you can get past that problem, that person that you're having conflict with, and then you're done. But regular life doesn't actually work that way mm -hmm. not very often yep yeah one one other thing i'd like to say is that you know if we if we get to teach the same thing over and over we can really become experts in that subject and that's that's one thing that as i'm learning learning the content it's it's all new how to teach it is new and i get to the end and say oh i would have done this and this differently but i'm not going to do that for another nine years <laughs> so the trade-off is instead we get to really know the children. Mm -hmm. So instead of being content experts, we're experts in these children. Because the relationship is really the core of our teaching. I think mm -hmm. as I teach more, I really feel much stronger about the relationship is everything. So yes, the children who might be challenging one year, Maybe we need more than one year to have this healthy, good relationship to know about each other. And then things change. So, yes, relationship is really the core for everything. Mm -hmm. That children need to trust us. And we need to earn that trust from them. And it might yes. take a little longer. Some children are a little right, anxious mm -hmm. <laughs> and doubtful. So mm -hmm. it might take a little longer. It's interesting because that would mean that teachers have some kind of a cycle, right? Much more of a natural life cycle, not just that you have nine years until you teach that class again, mm -hmm. but you may only do that three or four times in your life, right? Yep. That that would actually be a career mm -hmm. and shaped very differently than 
oh, I'm in my 25th year of teaching fifth grade math. Yep. Yeah. At, at our conferences and trainings, if you hear, you'll sometimes hear, oh, they're on their third cycle. You know, oh, this person is experienced. So. Mm-hmm. And so at what point do, do Waldorf students start um, moving into the classroom? Is it right when they hit second grade, they start doing that? First grade. First grade. Yep. Yeah. So part of what Micho was talking about was, you know, they are doing some practice for sitting still, learning how to use gentle voice. And <laughs> I'll just use the terms I use, walking feet inside, gentle hands, gentle voice, how to sit up upright at least in a way that's not harmful and that they're not going to fall out of their chair. Yeah, and then we we do begin with some inside time. Now, a lot a lot of the work in grade one can be done outdoors and is done in movement, for which it's nice to be outside because you have much more space. And then we, you know, we will practice some things quiet, some things loud, and it's nice to be able to be outside where it doesn't leave your ears ringing when a dozen children are allowed. But yeah, then we go inside, we do some things. So, you know, in first grade, we we do a unit on the letters. So we, we do a couple on the letters to introduce them one at a time, usually through, well, almost always through a story. So sometimes these stories will be, well, these stories will feature a particular sound or a particular letter very heavily. It's the usual way. So, um... story I did for M when I had my first grade involved, involved uh, two characters who would then become kind of the core of all our letter stories. They visited the magic misty mountains of the monkey monarch based on a Chinese tale about the monkey king, but monkey monarch, you get that uh, alliteration. <laughs> <laughs> Guessing you can hear what letter gets heavily featured there. And then we draw a picture of the mountain and then in this particular story, they, the characters are learning magic and they then travel through the world, learning more about it, but it's stored in runes. And then we see, oh, from the mountain, there's the letter M. So then after the drawing, then we write out the more abstract capital M. We also look at the hills leading to the mountain. There's your lowercase m. So that, that would be the inside part. And I would have loved this. <laughs> this would have fit me precisely. The the because it seems like so much longer of an arc to to connect with these things and mm-hmm. and uh, the imagery and stories like this would have been mm-hmm. right up my alley. And the fact that w- well, what it sounds like to me is mm-hmm. that you're um uh you're not being you're really open to the fact like using words like monarch. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that's not something that's done with little children. Right. Mm-hmm. That that's a trusting that they can figure out that context and integrate that language into their world seems mm-hmm. like the right way to, to behave. Yep. Yeah. It, One good. Yeah. We we do reading more reading later. An advantage of that is when we're focused on oral telling, oral storytelling, we can bring words like that. Mm-hmm. Now, if you give a first grader a book and it has the word monarch, that's going to be a challenge. You got digraphs. You've got letters not making their usual sounds, but they hear it in context, and now they know. Oh, monarch, that's a word. 
And then do you attempt to get all 26 letters in during this first year? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so on, on that particular story, as it was the first one and I was introducing them to the format, we spent basically the whole week just on M and how we learn it. After that, most, most of the stories were three days. Near the end, as they really got into the rhythm, we could spend two days as they learned the last. Um, and then, well, and vowels are, vowels are a different thing. <laughs> Consonants are well-behaved, so we can get through those. And moving on later, also sometimes a story would feature two. So um, one of them I did was based on, a, I think it's a Grimm's, but Jack the Valiant Taylor where you have Jack and his boastful billowing banner. So Jack's a bit of a troublemaker. And the thing you have to remember with Jay is he goes the wrong way. You read left to right, but Jay's shoes, he's looking the wrong way. And then boastful billowing banner, we got to draw that with a B. And yeah, in the story, he it, it begins with him swatting seven flies and and saying, wow. You know, wait, I'm still hung up on the J going the wrong way (laughs) because it's never even crossed my mind that the letter faces the opposite direction of all the other letters. Yeah, it's a hard one to learn. I never thought of that. Okay, now you know. Yeah, keep going. This is fantastic. Yeah. Anyway, so just explaining the boastful banner, he, he ends up swatting seven flies, I think it is, and looks and he says, wow, with one strike, I have killed seven. And so he writes that on a banner and then parades through the town. And then he parades out of town into a new town where people don't know him. And they say, wow, he's a great warrior. And they start calling him on all sorts of crazy quests. And anyway, because he's a trickster and a troublemaker, you build that idea in. So whenever I see a kid writing their J in the natural way, which is you read left to right, well, you want to put the feet that way. Remember, Jack's a troublemaker. He has to go the other way. Do you find, how do you find that this, I mean, you're in your system, so it's hard for you to know what the other systems are, but how does this, how is this different from the way that most kids learn to read and write? Yeah. So yeah, I I don't know so much about how, how it's done in the public school. I, I have heard there's much more of drilling and repeating things as you mentioned, writing the same letter, over and over, which we have ways of doing that that are a little more subtle. But um, yeah, you know, we we tell the story, and then we come up with words. We review it the next day, do something with it the day after, and then periodically come back to it. So yeah. Now, granted, the repetition is, as Michio said earlier, necessary to learning. And one challenge in the Waldorf school has been that often teachers don't do enough repetition because we are a little bit opposed to that. And also we want to get to the cool new things. <laughs> so that is a balance we have to find of getting enough repetition. So they have these things known, but not so much that they hate it because ultimately what we want is for them to love it. Because mm-hmm. if I have to be there driving them to do it, when I go, they're not doing it. But if they love to read, if they want to read, when, when they're ready and learning it and it's fun, then I give them books and say it's reading time. They do it on their own. In class, they'll pull their books out of their desk and try to read. And a little bit of a problem because we have other things we're doing, but it's great to see. That's why we don't really force them when they're not quite ready. 
but then we really share this love of stories from when they're little and the sound right yep. the fun sound rhyming all of that really so that they will love to read eventually the stories yeah i mean this is a really profound conversation for me because the people that i know that don't like to read mm-hmm. often will say i just don't really like stories i just don't really and I wonder if like I'm I'm connecting with the idea that it's all it's very possible that the the rote memorization and the divorcing reading from story really would make it so it reading is kind of like a punishment as opposed to like a capturing of a new way to understand stories. The story they can read in kindergarten is probably not really fun, right? A dog yes. is running. A baby is crying. Like, I don't know. So those are not really story. Mm-hmm. But we can give them, if I do 15 minutes of storytelling, I can give them a lot more context than learning to read one sentence. Yeah, but con- and- conversely, of course, we warn parents about giving too advanced stories. Sure. Yep. Um, just because we want them to be still interested in these simpler stories mm-hmm. that when they get to reading, we don't right. want them to be reading something age appropriate and saying, well, this is boring because yeah, then, then it's not going to be fun to do that mm-hmm. practice that they have to before they get to the. So everything is brought in an age appropriate way. Mm-hmm. Yes. So very, we are very conscious where they are developmentally, what to bring, how we meet them and what speak to them but not to push them too too soon too early so in the reading are you still doing the the spot the red dog went to the house like are you doing that kind of reading as well um in in first first or second you can do that if a kid needs that later of course you would come back and do that kind of thing but there you have the inverse problem where there you have the problem that the stories are too simple for them and they're going to get bored with them, then it's not rewarding. But yeah, we, we have certain books that we read to the class. Um, yeah, we had, um, what was it? Let's see, I can remember the name of one was Jen the Slug. She was a bug. She slithered through the mud. That one was really focusing on you. All these um, constant vowel consonant regular words where they can then be employing oh this word makes this sound this vowel makes this sound this one oh hey we can get this word and then there the rhyming building up this knowledge of rhyming is both helping them understand the phonemes and then recognizing okay if this word ended in ud and made ud oh this word ud this word has so I can't think of two that rhyme, but um, <laughs> jug and bug. So, and we were working on with my kids recently. If if you hear two words that rhyme, they probably are spelled the same. So the, the specific example was far and star there. So we'd written out far earlier. And said, well, think about how far is spelled. So we're working on well, AR and then well, star, that's a s and a t. And then how did far end? So then they extend from there. 
So as children are coming up in the system, it's there a lot of those things are natural progression. Can a child start Waldorf when they're eight or nine and still be okay into the system? Yeah, there will be a learning curve. And the one of one challenge I've seen is, you know, they, they can figure out the academics and in some areas they'll be ahead. Other areas they they'll be behind because we're I wouldn't say we're advanced or less advanced overall. We're more different. But you know, they'll they'll learn these things and the challenge. So most of my teaching has been with the middle school where kid comes in and the rest of the class has had six, seven, or eight years of doing things in a particular way. So I'm used to not having to explain these things. But then a new kid comes in and it's, reminds me how much we do that is mm-hmm. new and different. So there is that challenge, but you know, that at that age anyway, it takes one conversation and showing them and then they can do it. Um, one, one of the bigger challenges is that the relationship isn't there. So you have to rebuild that. Yes. And yes, so both, the child. Yeah, both teacher and student relationship, but also mm-hmm. student to others. Because the others oh, so interesting because it's not just that the kids are with the teacher together, mm-hmm. but they are together yep. and it's more akin to a one room schoolhouse than <laughs> than something. And there's something about the grades too, right? They're not the standard just everybody is one grade or isn't it two combined? That's yeah, that's that's not school. That's not Waldorf specifically. Okay. That's that's because of our size. You know, most of our grades are would be about six students on their own, which to make that work financially would be difficult. But, um, but there's also when you have just twelve students, even though they're two grades apart, you can still meet all their needs and work with them. And you know, if you had twelve students all in one grade, you'd still have a range. Mm-hmm. So it's you're still employing the same techniques that you would use to meet a range of students. Um, yeah, so so we are combined pretty much, well, in my eight years there, I've seen one grade that was standalone. And they, Big in the, yep. Yeah. And the social experience too, mm-hmm. especially when they are together since kindergarten, like with just six students in one class. Yes. It's like siblings. Yeah, right? it yep. would It's be. really hard to mm-hmm. bring this school class feel, so... That's another reason we combine the classes mm-hmm. too, yes. to have the bigger social experience. Again, we really, it is important for us to have them that social experience. Mm-hmm. Now, you guys had mentioned before about there being a moral teaching to school. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about the school teaching morality um, and it's like, whoa, I don't know that I want that. <laughs> yep. So tell me what this means and, and how do you, how are you careful about that? Sure. So, so a lot of it, a lot of what we teach are things that I, I really hope are not controversial. You know, be kind to other people, follow through on what you say. When the elder tells you, don't go down that dark path, listen to the elder or you will be eaten by the scary monster. And then we do it through storytelling, mm-hmm. a lot of stories. And we even... In second grade, but you don't really preach them, even you tell the story. Yes. 
novel, right? Yeah. So we try to really bring as a story and then kind of sit, let them sit with the story. Mm-hmm. And hopefully that sense grows in them. The preaching really, sometimes we do have to tell the children, of course, but that doesn't happen as much. It's more through the story. And then also just being together as a group. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so an example, going back to the M story, (laughs) the, one of the two characters in it, um, I called, I called him Red Egg, but in the source material, he's called Eggborn. He was born out of an egg, which that's unusual. And then he grows up quickly. But although he's now an adult who has uh, prodigious strength and health, he's he's um, very argumentative and fighting with the, the monks who took him in and always getting into arguments and always going too fast. And he's not able to get through the all the perils of the magic misty mountains until he finally slows down, takes his time, thinks about things. And when he encounters trouble, instead of storming off as he did the first time, he instead looks and says, oh, I see how to solve that. And then he takes another route. You know, that's that's moral teaching in there, of, of patience, of mm-hmm. thoughtfulness. And then because and Waldorf School's teachers, we do have scope and sequence right what yep. we want to teach in this grade mm-hmm. we do have that but then how we bring that content is really up to the teachers mm-hmm. so this misty mountain often i feel like i've heard many first grade teacher use that words but he can make up his own story to meet the needs of the class or i can make up my own story to meet the needs of the class if they're struggling to share maybe i can come up with a story of little animal creatures who's struggling to share you know those kind of things we can try to meet the needs of the children in subtle way through story so that's the freedom we have yeah as i'm as i'm hearing you i'm thinking you must have uh trust with the parents as well in the sense that um you know, many people want to know, like, just tell me what you're going to do and I'll just, you know, mark this checklist off. Yes, you've done these things, but you're saying if you're going to be responsive, that means you've got to change constantly. You've got to use stories like tell me about the relationship of the Montessori teacher with the parents or Waldorf. Waldorf, Waldorf I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, there, there definitely is an element of, as Michio mentioned, that every teacher will bring it their own way. There's, she also mentioned scope and sequence, which is our list of things we're hoping they'll do. So, for example, by, by third grade, we expect they'll know their times tables out of order as well as in order. By second grade, we expect them to know the times tables sequentially mm-hmm. would be one. Now, how I bring that will be different. So I mentioned we, we have a poem we do where we go through each of the number families, one through 12. And then we're doing jump rope where we jump, but instead of counting one, two, we'll count three, six, nine, or whatever number we're working on. Um, Jessica Rauderman, who teaches, uh, she's got six and seven this year, it's her main. Uh, she, she came up with her class parodies of Christmas songs. 
where they sang some verse to it and then found ones that the number families fit into, but then singing it to the tune. So, so that's one way. So both of us taught the number families, mm-hmm. practiced multiplication tables. We did it in different ways. Right. We could go get there in a different way because we have different children mm-hmm. in the classroom. Yep. So that's, but that we have goal for that year. Mm-hmm. And then again, the benefit of having, carrying the class over years, maybe there may be children who needs extra time to get there. Mm-hmm. The teachers, teachers know, teachers are aware to, so that where you can pick up. Yep. So that's another benefit too. We don't have to f- have spend the time two months figuring out where they are mm-hmm. or what we left off last year. Yep. So. Yeah. And there is a lot of communication. Right. Between the grades. You know, one one tradition is the first grade teacher does weekly or biweekly or monthly phone calls with the parents just to check in and not, you know, not just when there's something wrong, but just doing it every week. And you know, sometimes those are very quick calls of, yeah, everything's the same. It's doing well. How are you at home? You know, talk with the parents and build relationships. And in the upper grades, when we start getting to things that could be controversial. There, we in our parent meetings, which we have a couple of each year, we do talk about that together. So, you know, seventh grade, we talk about uh, physiology of reproduction and puberty and all the uh, relationships and all the consent, all the things that tie in with that. So, I really need the parents to know what I'm going to talk about. And I'm now, um, then eighth grade, we get into modern history. Now, there's there's ugly parts of that. We talk about civil rights and why that was necessary. We talk about the Second World War, the rise of fascism. You know, these are parts of history that we feel by eighth grade, the student is ready to begin grappling with. One of our themes that year is the balance in things, which not saying not saying fascism is a kind of balance we need to balance with, but you know the balance of freedom of democracy versus having someone just tell you what to do, which is much easier. You know, that's why kings were so popular for so long, part of the reason. So, yeah, I think that. And then another thing we have is festivals. Mandatory festivals, <laughs> which we, we make them, we try to make them fun. Everyone has a good time, but also that's, that's the time we all get together and get to meet. So. Tell me about the festivals. What is, what, what is a festival? How do you choose which ones to celebrate? What goes on? Uh, we, we choose because these are the ones we've been doing for a while. Mm-hmm. The tradition is for one yep. reason. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, occasionally we'll drop one or try a new one, or, but more often we just change something and see what it works. You so. just did the Harvest Festival, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a newer one. Mm-hmm. And it's, oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's an outreach event rather than a proper... That's a more wider community. We invite wider community too to that event. Yep. But it is really, yeah, celebrating mm-hmm. the season yep. in different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and before that, as one of our own, we had our, what we've called um, Michaelmas, the Festival of Courage is what we're celebrating there. So that one, we go out to uh, the farm of one of the founders of the school who's continued to let us hold it there. Um, there's a play that's put on by the oldest class. So typically in honor of 
that day because it falls around the feast of Saint Martin. It's um, Saint Michael. Michael, thank you, <laughs> thank you. Martin misses the next one. Saint Michael. So this is a story that um, base. It's very traditional story, I guess. Um, so slaying of the dragon by Saint Michael. So that's the picture we carry. Is good conquers the bad. Mm -hmm. And we yep. need the courage to face the darkness. That is really the theme of the festival. So we call another name of the festival is Festival of Courage. We're trying to really go by this mm -hmm. virtue. Yes. So Festival of College, we, we just celebrated. And then in yep. November, we mm -hmm. have the... Martinus or their... Yes, Martinus. of Compassion. Compassion for sharing because mm -hmm. St. Martin... Yeah, St. Martin of Tours is famous for, he found found a poor man outside the city. He's going to die in the cold, so he cut his cloak in two so he'd have a have a blanket to keep him warm enough. So we celebrate that festival every year. Mm -hmm. And then you do the court drive yep. or a food drive, something like that, so that we can really share this mm -hmm. spirit of this yep. festival. Yeah, so we have... Yeah, so we have the we're, we're doing a coat and heater drive this year. That's what the group we work with says they're in need of. But then also we have a night where we gather. The mm -hmm. second grade class puts on a a play. We're doing a story of Saint Martin this year, and then after that we also do a lantern walk, which is a German tradition. So the kids all make lanterns in the weeks leading up to it. So different ways you know you can decorate a glass jar and make a handle you can take a paper bag and um, cut out shapes and put over uh, colored tissue paper lots of different ways you can do it and then we walk around walk around the school grounds singing songs in the evening so we have those kind of festival mm -hmm. maybe a few times a year and then we do celebrate most every year there are core festival that we celebrate every year. Um, it's an opportunity really for us to stop and really look at what's happening and take time to really live in that virtue during that time. And then also for the children, what a hmm, relief or secure, secure feeling they have to celebrate same festival over and over and over and they know oh after this festival it will be this festival yeah marking time in a way that's important it is and for a year so right especially now it's so much unknown <laughs> it's so nice to be able to celebrate the festival actually last two years even in pandemic time when everyone was trying right we needed to be separated <laughs> for a long time but we still try to celebrate in a way that we can do Mm -hmm. And that really gave us this strength and feel of security. Yes, word is going around another year and we are okay. And then that really is a great feeling for the children to have. And then I, community. I think traditions like, so I grew up in a family of seven kids. Oh. And, you know, my parents probably to keep their sanity put mm -hmm. traditions in on everything. And I just assumed everyone had that. Mm -hmm. But that really marked time. And when you leave those traditions, all of a sudden, 
yeah, you can watch the trees changing, you know, color over time, but you're really disconnected from it because we live in climate controlled houses. So you can't tell when it's hotter or colder. We have lights. So if it's getting darker out, it doesn't really matter to you. Traditions are the thing that keep you connected with the fabric of things. Mm -hmm. Yes, especially for the children. It's really very impactful. When I was touring the school, I remember walking into one of the rooms and they were preparing for the annual play. And uh, they had a picture of a sewing machine on the chalkboard. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is like a real schematic of Mm -hmm. how a sewing machine works. Talk about that because that's like a fundamental part of, of the education. Yep. Yeah, that would have been an eighth grade class. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we, we go to machine sewing. Uh, one of our, our theme in history that year, one of them is industrialization. So the sewing machine being a big part of that. So, but then in physics, we've, also, we've looked at the simple machines in seventh grade, looked at um, electromagnetism sometime between seventh and eighth. And from the simple machines, what they know about that, you can now understand every part of a sewing machine. It's not to say we go through and say, well, here's the pinion, here's the here's the gear shaft. Or, but you have an intuitive sense of it yeah. by the time you've gotten there. Yeah, but you can see, oh, this part pushes this part. It repeats this thing. Yeah, and then also, big part of that also is teaching them how to use it. Again, going back to the practical. They've been doing hand sewing since kindergarten. And now we get... We get the machine out. We show, well, here's the things you have to keep in mind. Now, when you have your pins, you don't want the needle to hit the pin because then you break your sewing machine needle. <laughs> so you have to pull those out as you're going along. Now, here's how you keep your fingers safe, although they've got the foot that should do that. And then when something goes wrong, here's the things you can start looking at. So really teaching them how to use it because they're... They're, they're a little yeah, tricky it's to really learn. connected. The whole curriculum is connected. Handwork, we do handwork. Yep. But that also is connected with the mm-hmm. main lesson is how yep. we call it. Because, yes, that night he talked about this history they learn mm-hmm. is very appropriate to bring the machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not separated. Everything is connected and then be yep. intentionally brought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it... Some teachers will also have the eighth grade handwork project be building sewing costumes for their place. So might have also been. That's exactly what they were doing. And so they're preparing for their play Mm -hmm. and then they're thinking about costumes and learning how to construct those costumes. And Mm -hmm. they uh, they wrote the play themselves, too, or something along those lines. Right. Or I could be wrong. They might have. Yeah. Yeah. They do that sometimes. So it would appear that. A child would, a child that is artistic would be very successful in the Waldorf program. Mm-hmm. Can all children be artistic? You're shaking your head. Yes, I think so on their own way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, not not everyone's going to be a great great portraitist because that you know to really get to a high level, you, you have to practice outside of school and put a lot of effort when you're in school, and not all the children will be interested in that. You know, some. Some will be more interested in knitting. Some will be more interested in clay and sculpting. So, yeah, but they have but, opportunity to experience all of those things. Yep. Handwork, um, language, right? Different two mm-hmm. two different languages they learn. We have movement. I think, and of course, music is part of it. 
art is also part of the lesson. Mm -hmm. It's not separated. It's really part of our lesson. Yep. And they all experience these arts. Mm -hmm. Everyone will. Yes. They all learn how to play violin. They all learn how to play recorder. Wait, they all learn how to play violin? Yes. Mm -hmm. Whoa. Or Say recorder. more about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, they start recorder in first grade. Fruit. Yes, in first grade. Yeah, and in so third grade, they do violin. Yep. Yeah. And so recorder, both as, as a first instrument, uh, we, we typically bring the pentatonic recorder, which has a few fewer notes, so you don't move all your fingers, but... So, in addition to learning kind of the basics of how we use a musical instrument and, you know, how, most importantly, how to not make noise with it. <laughs> that is the first <laughs> lesson. <laughs> but then you have to hold it a certain way. Make sure your left hand's on top, your right hand's on bottom. And then getting control of the fingers. That, that's a skill for the young ones. Of just lift this finger. Yeah. Not, not both of them. Just one and not this one. So... And you know, that, that then helps with all the other fine motor things we do. So, and then in, we, we've typically done third grade. We're trying starting them in second grade this year. They, they'll start violin. And then that will continue on until I think fifth grade when they're introduced to viola and cello. And then in six, seven, eight, they get to choose whichever one of those instruments. And then they do that in the orchestra class. So do all Waldorf teachers then need to know how to play the violin in order to be a teacher? We have we have a we have a music teacher come in. Here. <laughs> well, although I know he can play. I mean some yep. teachers are able to play. You, know? you can play yeah. because you learned in school presumably. <laughs> yep. Okay. Yeah, and there, I mean in, in grades teaching there's a recommendation to learn mm -hmm. a bit about everything your yeah. students will be doing. Mm -hmm. So, you know. Well, recorder we can all play too. Yes. We yeah. will have to learn that. Yep. But I think exposing to all these things, the children are not necessarily good at everything, mm -hmm. but they'll find something they can shine. I think shine, you know, and then I think that they respect each other in that way. And then they feel, okay, I'm not as good as maybe drawing mm -hmm. as so-and-so, or, oh, he's so good at this. I think they're really respecting each other in that way. Like to going back to your question of what if one child is not a good artist, but I think they can all find something they are good at or they like or they can proud of. How many of the kids that start in the young classes go all the way up till your school goes to the eighth grade mm -hmm. through the eighth grade? Yeah really depends on the class i would say some class really goes strong from kindergarten all the way up to eighth grade some class lose and gain along the way so it's difficult to say yeah i think uh, the last class i graduated i think most of them had been together since mm -hmm. kindergarten. kindergarten some of them since before that and then the rest of them had joined in the early grades other than the one who joined I think in fifth or sixth grade so in that case it was a large amount of the class so surely yeah, you must your school system is so different than other systems mm -hmm. surely you must hear criticisms about what you do what's the what are some of the criticisms you've heard and how, how do you think about them sure so 
I mentioned the not doing enough repetition is one, and you know, there's especially as you get well, both early on with them being worried, oh, my kid's in first grade but not reading yet. And then later as they're getting into six, seven, and eight of, oh, will they be ready for high school? They're not doing this thing in algebra yet. So there's a lot of that, I would say, is concerns. And yeah, in the St. Louis system, mm-hmm. high school is a very big deal yes. here. For, for Where did you go to that are school? outside of St. Louis, <laughs> they don't realize like, here, it's as big of a deal as what college did you go to? It's what high school. Mm-hmm. Do yep. kids that are going to Waldorf have trouble getting into the high school that they need to get into, want to get into? Mm-hmm. You're shaking your head no like I'm crazy. I think so. So most don't. No, most yeah. don't. I, 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 sorry, I thought the question you were going to ask is do they have trouble in high school, which I was going to say there is one complaint we get consistently, which is they are not prepared for the amount of homework. <laughs> so. I wasn't prepared for the amount of homework when I got yep. to high school either. No one was prepared yep. for <laughs> but school. We're also not going to give the kids three or four hours of homework in eighth grade just so they can go to high school and say, oh, this is the same. But so. getting into high school and doing well in high school is not really mm-hmm. a question. I mean, if people are just listening to this, they should see your face because you're just like, it's not really quite like, so, so like, I appreciate that. I do think though, what do you want for your child? Mm -hmm. What do you want for your child? Who do you want this child to be? To me, I want my daughter, the only one that I can really say very much about, because one is three months and the other is two years. Mm -hmm. The two-year-old, like, she's so curious and so interested in what's going on around her Mm -hmm. that I want that to go as long as we possibly can because eventually she'll hit some point where there's a tempering between your curiosity and producing work Mm -hmm. but I don't need that to be any time now and it frightens me to think about my parents put me in a great school they you know I but like most of my education probably came from my six siblings, which Violet's not going to have, right? Mm -hmm. And so finding a way to extend this period of time where whatever she is most curious about, she's able to pursue and to give her access to understanding art in a way that I cannot give to her. I I don't have it. It wasn't uh, encultured in me. And what I hear you say, like, I'm a little bit like, I'm not sure I want to air this because I don't want people competing for whatever spots are at that <laughs> Waldorf school. Yes, I think um, it's uh, I maybe my face, right? <laughs> what do you mean by doing well, right? I feel like our students go out into the world with knowing who they are, what they want to do. And then I think with this... Um, feeling of I want to contribute to the world I don't know (laughs) I might be just thinking it too big but there is a feeling in eighth graders who's going to high school like I I'm I'll be fine Mm -hmm. and then I I know what I can do and I I will be fine I think that's such a gift in this world of anxiety and and all of these things that they're facing a feeling that if, if there's a problem, though, I can solve it. Yeah. Something <laughs> I want to learn. Hey, I'll go read about it. Mm-hmm. I'll do the research. Yeah. Oh, I see something needs to be done. I'll go do it. 
And you feel like you're the education that you received, like that's mm-hmm. what you really learned. Like it sounds like a, a self-determination, right? Like mm-hmm. the ability to, to decide the path and be able to make your way that way. Yeah. Did you know when you were leaving eighth grade that you wanted to be a Waldorf teacher? <laughs> I, I knew I did not want to be a middle school or elementary teacher. Did not want anything to do with that. So, Don't yeah. you enjoy middle school teaching, though? Right? Yep. Now. And, and now I found I find I really love it. <laughs> yeah. No, let's see. High school, what did I want to do? Yeah, at some point, I was pretty sure I wanted to be uh, either emergency medicine or hemoncology were my interests. Hemoncology? <laughs> so that would be? Uh, blood and cancer. Okay. And did you pursue those things? Uh, well, I when when I started going into college, I was a little. I became more interested in kind of disaster response, so that pushed me more towards emergency medicine. But I found um, I get very woozy around blood, <laughs> even reading about it. Really? Yes. Well, that would be a problem in that emergency is medicine. A problem also for hemonk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I just remembered some other dreams I had, but that, that was it in college. And, but I, I did think I wanted to do something with the sciences and I thought renewable energy, that, that could be interesting. I, I've had a love of astronomy for a long time. So I figured, Hey, that's physics. So I shifted over to physics and as one of the gen ed I went to a liberal arts college and needed a gen ed. And one of the options for one of the flags, I think they called them, was an education course, introduction to education. I said, you know, that might be interesting. Were you surprised about what you learned about education since you had been mm-hmm. in the Waldorf system? Well, um, there was a bit, but also you know, I didn't go to a Waldorf high school, so I... What high school did you go to? Uh, Crossroads. I don't know any of the St. Louis high schools. <laughs> okay. So. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything to me. Okay. Yep. Yeah, it's up in Forest Park. Okay. Uh, down the street from the History Museum. Okay. So, yeah. Anyway, so talked to lots of students there. And uh, my, my class was actually the first graduating class of the Waldorf School. So, there was no one else who had been to the Waldorf School before. So, I had, I got to explain to lots of my classmates what the Waldorf school was and that really gave me a insight into how it was different oh yeah because kids will really tell you yep. oh we didn't do that <laughs> oh yeah yep yeah and then also all of the all of the kind of habits I picked up in Waldorf so for example when we do sciences part of the science class is you clean up after the experiment you know just like in the early grades you put set things up put them away yeah toys uh, away yeah yep. we continue after the labs you clean out the jars you can unless you're leaving something for tomorrow so in high school chemistry i just assumed we would all stay and clean the lab afterwards <laughs> that was not the expectation <laughs> so yeah so um is it are people knocking down the door to go to waldorf school how, how is how is enrollment how does this look compared to other things 
Really? No. So, well, for early childhood, I feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a wait list. For parents this. can wrap their minds around it doing it at early childhood. Yeah. In, in grades, the program is much smaller and has shrunk a lot in the last two years. So, we have spots there. And uh, what about the teacher side of it? I would imagine the teaching that you're describing would be very attractive to a certain kind of person. Mm-hmm. Yes, if you... Yes. Want creativity or your talent to be really used because you can really bring your strengths in mm-hmm. your teaching. Yep. Yes, definitely. And if you love teaching but not quite really interested in teaching in a mainstream way, yep. definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And well, you started like- off as a substitute teacher, right? Yes, I did. And how then did the path go for you? How did You'd come over from Japan, mm-hmm. you started subbing at your children's school, mm-hmm. and now, how did you go on to becoming... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, well, I know, actually. So, one of the founding teachers um, told me, you know, Michio, I think you have, what did she say? You have the quality that's hard to be trained. You, ha- you should be a Waldorf teacher. And then that is some really nice compliment, <laughs> really nice thing to hear from someone who I respected. And then maybe I should really try and see how I like it or not. And that's how I started. And then the education path for you to become a teacher? There isn't So, one. no, I was not interested. That was one, one, one job I thought I would never consider is a teaching especially with the little children that's amazing to me because it seems like you were born to do this when i saw you in action i'm not sure but yes now i do i do i really do love it and i feel hmm, this is the way i can contribute so Yes, the youngest children are important. And I do feel this is what I want to do. What is the education path? How does someone become, do you have to get certified to be a Waldorf teacher? Yeah. There are training programs, Mm -hmm. mostly closed. And there is one, two actually, one in Chicago and one in Milwaukee too. Mm -hmm. It's usually three to four year program. Mm Part-time. Mm-hmm. Part-time. Part-time. Because you're teaching the rest right. of the Right. So you yep. are usually teaching. So three weeks in the summer, one week each in spring and fall. And you do student teaching, practicum, observation, yep. field work, mm-hmm. these things too. Yeah. So so there's the there, there's certification programs, which are often for teachers who are already teaching. And then, in addition, most most teachers will do that. Grades teachers will do a yearly course on about the content in the year they're about to teach. So, this summer I did a we we call those intensives. I did a grade three intensive because I, I taught grades one and two last year. So I did the grade two then. So I knew where where the grade two child is. Things had been refreshed. You know, kind of about what what the usual curriculums are. Suggestions for how to bring it. So then this year I studied on grade three. So now I have 
those two in recent memory to draw on and apply to my teaching. Now, when a teacher goes to a mm -hmm. class on teaching Waldorf, mm -hmm. are you guys playing outside and uh, doing jumping with numbers? Or how, how does the class actually get structured? It, it, it's pretty much like that. We do have morning. <laughs> yes, we have morning lecture. We have movement class. We have arts. We all have to take yep. music class. Mm -hmm. Clay, painting, yep. handwork for mm -hmm. childhood teachers, puppetry, yep. storytelling. Well. Yes, and then sometimes, yes, yep. play outside maybe. Yeah, <laughs> now, a lot of that is to teach the th practice doing the things you're going to do. So, yeah, we don't, with, with the children, I might do a particular movement and poem combination for a month, but we won't, we won't do that in our training. We'll do that for one day or maybe a week. So to really get the feeling for this is the kind of thing you can expect for a third grade student to be challenged with at a good level. And, and then the teacher also models. So I see you're not doing it quite correctly. Here's how I would work with a third grade child. And then they model that. Oh, so. because you're actually doing it, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Ah. Yeah. And then, you know, there's things that would be hard, you know, like try to write a description of tying your shoe. It's hard. Show someone you can do that and you can show them how to do that. But, you know, in first grade, we have things called the zoo exercises, which are difficult to explain. But That's an intentional movement. Mm -hmm. Yes. So moving in the ways of certain animals in certain ways. So those, yeah, we, we get down on the ground. We walk like a walrus. We, yes, we roll fish. in certain ways. Yep. <laughs> Bear walk, mm -hmm. all kinds of things. Yep. Yes, we do a lot of things. So it is fun and intense, mm -hmm. the teacher training is. But still, even after three years or four years of training, you feel like you're just scratching the surface. You just have enough to start. Mm -hmm. So our research and our study really start from there almost. Mm -hmm. Because the children are different every year. And we have to meet our students that we have here. Mm -hmm. um, both of you are unique and you like immediately recognize it, right? It's, uh, you know, the way you carry yourself. Both of you have a certain tone of voice. Mm -hmm. But you're also, you know, different, right? You're different from just the regular person that you would find on the street. I don't know. <laughs> you don't think so? Is this a surprise to you that that I would say that? that, that I mean, you talked about uh, eating okra in the morning that you, you picked and before we got started. And mm -hmm. you said before, you know, I was looking for a place where I could buy beeswax crayons for my children. So both of you intuitively know you're, you're at least a little bit different than are the students when they come out is a, function of the education make them different or uh, I don't know the right way to ask this question. I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just yep. saying you're different. Yep. Do kids come out as different? And I think what a parent might be thinking is weird. Do they come out yep. as weird? Yeah. So, so yes, was I'm, I'm hearing your question, not yes, they come out weird. But, <laughs> you know, there, there is an element of that because we really encourage them to be themselves and to accept each other for who they are. So I, I can say when we have children join in the later grades from, from public schools, there, there is a bit of a culture shock with them of coming in and finding these things. You know, so for example, the word, we, the word nerd is not used 
other in a serious manner. So, so that that was something new to one of the kids is that they could talk about their nerdy things, and other kids would be interested and say, "Yeah, tell me more." That they didn't have to hide that they loved dinosaurs and toxicology. That the other kids just said, "That's neat." Yes, I think so. Yeah, weird is not a bad mm-hmm. yes. thing. It's unique. Mm-hmm. We everyone should be different, mm-hmm. and then we accept that difference. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think and, when you get oh, go ahead. Yeah, and then just speaking as a Waldorf kid going <laughs> into high school, there there was also a culture shock for me. The thing I I most remember is um, what what I think now is called verbal sparring, but where friends will say mean things to each other in a joking way, which that was not at all part of my middle school culture. <laughs> so I, I remember my first day in kind of the freshman common areas, and I saw these three guys sitting next to each other just absolutely insulting each other. And I, went, I thought, wow, these people are complete jerks. Why are they so mean? But then over the year, I learned, oh, they're friends, they're joking. This is part of how they play. Yeah, part of how they tell each other things mm-hmm. that they can't say in a, in a in a verbose way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. What are the things? What's a? I, I I feel like there's so much to the school and the system and the ideas that you have. Um. Sometimes people, when I go look up criticisms, they they say, "Oh, the guy that started that, he was really mm-hmm. pretty pretty mm-hmm. off the wall guy." I don't know. Are you sure you want to do that? Yeah. What do you think about that? Sure. Yeah. I I would say yes. He had he had many ideas that aren't correct. I I would first point them to one of the quotes from him in one of the last books he wrote, where he said, "This is my understanding. If if anything, if anything I've said turns out to be wrong, disregard it. Give it only as much importance as you would fairy tales of old." Um, he also specifically talking about his more. Um, guess I would say spiritual ideas. He said, you know, think about these things yourself. Think about them deeply. And this is the part I can remember. Because anyone who accepts my ideas without thinking about them is useless. That's great. I love that. That's a big thing. Like mm-hmm. he never wanted, if this is not religion, it yep. feels, you feel this religious feel almost, especially in an early childhood, yep. because we respect and the re- mm-hmm. Reverence is important yes. for us, mm-hmm. right? Respect. Mm-hmm. That brings naturally kind of religious feeling maybe in the classroom. But then this is not religion. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want us to believe in him. Yep. He mm-hmm. wants us to think on our own and the question and yep. find our answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, he had some, he had some ideas now. I mean, we, when I read... Through his writings, I, as a scientific-minded person, I see lots of scientific things that are just wrong. And, you know, those are fine. We can ignore them. So some of those he uses as a basis for how to teach. So then we have to be very careful. So, for instance, when he was talking about why, we, why to teach drawing instruction this way, he relied on a theory of how the eye works that now we know is, or are pretty sure is not true. All current research points to it not being true. So now when I look at that method, which has continued to be used, I have to say, well, is there merit in this method? Now, now Steiner died 100 years ago, and we've had 100 plus years of practice. So 
that it's continued tells me there. It, it at least isn't terrible. Yeah, your explanation as to why something works mm -hmm. is not always yep. the same as mm -hmm. that it works. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, an example that I bring up in later grades is there was a fellow in, I think, the late 1800s who predicted global warming, but the chemistry he was basing it on was later shown to not be true, so his idea was thrown out. But then later it turns out, well, he had the right idea, just the wrong mm -hmm. reasoning. You know, Steiner also had some ideas about medicine that we would say aren't right. So there's one passage where he talked about for a child with this condition, give them water sweetened with lead. <laughs> we would say, nope, don't do that. Yeah, that, that's only going to cure a certain kind of condition. Right. Yep. Yeah. That's part of the reason we have to keep really do our own research and study mm -hmm. as teachers. Yep. too and then go to training and those conversation happens in trainings too yep so as a movement we are aware mm -hmm. yes and you think of this as a movement then it is tell me more <laughs> isn't it yeah yeah you know it's it's bringing this idea that it's it's not just about not just about academic the academics not just about how soon can we get this kid doing calculus not just about let's bring in physical education and art because kids who do those perform better at the academics. Let's let's not bring in, let's not have them do chores because that's a easy time that we don't need specialists for and that reduces our cost and keeps the place clean. No, it's because all these things are good and healthy and beneficial for the child in their own right. That we want children who can affect the world around them to make it a more beautiful place, who can think clearly, who can feel deeply, drink deeply from the cup of life, but not let it overwhelm them, who can be good people. Yes, good people <laughs> for the world. I love that. I don't think we could actually have a better closing than that. Uh, is there anything I didn't ask? This this has been a wonderful conversation. Unless you want to go yeah, I, overnight. <laughs> yeah, I, I enjoy talking about this and... If you want to talk middle school, we could talk a long time about that. Yeah, but right. Yep. Well, this has been wonderful. If if people have found themselves struck by the idea of uh, Waldorf education, what should be their next step? Visit our website. <laughs> yep, if they're local. The Waldorf School of St. Louis. We are in Webster Grove, North Webster Grove. Mm -hmm. um, yes, we have walk and talk tour every month and then i think open house in january mm -hmm. just please go to website and call our school yeah i did the walk and talk and i would i was doing it just to see what's right for our child but i would recommend it for anybody that's just curious about a different way of thinking it was like seeing a, a living museum in some way <laughs> and then your program uh, that had a i mean just the one time that i went maybe i went twice it changed the way the nature with which how we interacted with our daughter in a very positive way. So I I could not say it Is any, the parent any higher. Child class? Yeah, the parent child class that That's... we came and we made bread and did all of that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's a reward for me to hear that. Oh, Thank it you. certainly did. I mean, the nature with which how we spoke to Violet, how we called her attention not by raising our voice but by going quieter and by 
singing songs. Like it, it helped me to understand my daughter in a way that I didn't before. So thank you. And thank you guys for uh, coming by after a long day of school <laughs> and being outside. So thank you so much. For thank, coming you. On. thank you. Thank you. Thank ah, ah, you. Ah.